as I've been on this theme now for some time, uh, talking about what is this faith we're called to live out, our living faith, we get to the last two verses of James chapter 5, which is 19 and 20, and it is the big application. That's what it is. And really it comes down to something real simple. And that is that if we desire what we're supposed to, and that is to be like Christ, then we can do these verses, verse 19 and 20. Because that's what it calls on us to do. And uh, Scripture is not quiet about the point. It wants you to be like Christ. And you will be. And I'm glad for that. That means my job's going to be successful, right? But it's not my work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. For He is the one who indwells you to make you like Jesus Christ. And we submit to Him and He does His work. And and that is not just something that's wonderful for you or for me, but it's wonderful for the church. The church as a whole in today's world... There are groups that get together and they talk about how can we be unified in the church. They, they talk about the problems of society. They talk about divisions and, and all kinds of different things from denominations to uh, societal issues and all the rest. And they say, you know, the church is rather fragmented. In just about any department you want, it's fragmented. And the desire is how can we bring about unity and Some people talk about a unity in in society or politics or in whatever. But Scripture talks about a unity where Jesus Christ prayed in John chapter 17 that they all may be one, even as you and I are one. He's talking to his Father. God's desire is that we become like him, Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what unity is, is, that is when we are all like Christ. And then we shall look like we're unified again. That's what we should do. That's our striving that we do in this world is to be like Christ. And the value of that in verse 1920 is just popping up off the page right at us. Because how are we going to minister to our brothers if we are not like Christ? So, see it with me again. James 5, 19 and 20. My brethren, if... Any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Verse 20 is a a staggering verse, really. And we're going to get to that, I think, next week. Which means we'll be done next week with this study. How's that? Only 39 weeks to do it, but we could do it. Um, We're going to try. But today, we have to look at verse 19, the second part of it, because I've already dealt with the first three words. My brethren, if. Now, it sets us up for what James is about to give us as a potential scenario. Something that could happen. Doesn't necessarily mean it was happening in his day. It could have been happening in his day. But what's great about it is it's always a potential for the church. And I like the way it says that, because we can't turn this and say, oh, that was just in his day, and we don't need it today. Because being a potential, it's still true for the church today. It can be necessary. 
And I say it that way. Just a simple illustration for you in the fellowship hall downstairs. We have this white box on the wall, and it says AED on it. That's not to call for help or something like that. That's that little electronic thing that shocks your system when you have a heart attack or something like that. I hope we never have to use it. But we have it just in case, right? That's an important thing, just in case. This two, these two verses are just in case verses, just so you know. And that's why it's so applicable to us today as we work through this, is that there is an action that is called for, just in case. And in verse number 20, there's a result that comes. And we're going to see what that is next week. But today, let's talk about the action, specifically in verse number 19. After I've dealt with my brother, if, my brother, if, remember, or we should all be concerned for a sinful brother, sinful sister. We, we should have a great concern for them. And that's not just for one member or the leadership of the church. That's for all of the church to be involved. And that's why he addresses it to my brethren. It's for everybody. And what it takes is the whole body to be mature enough to handle this. My brethren, each of us owe it to each other to be mature in Christ. We owe that to one another. It's not only your calling, spiritually, that you are like Christ. It is your destiny that you should be like Christ. But it's also your duty. And I underscore that word, duty, because most people hear that word and they say, there's that word. We don't like the word duty. It comes from the word do. It's what you owe. It's what you owe to your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you be spiritually mature. That's so that in case we have a brother or a sister who is in great need, we can pray earnestly for them. This passage speaks of prayer, doesn't it? Yes. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That we could pray strongly for the welfare of our weak brother, to assist them, to turn around from where they are. Notice that in the, the verses here, verse 19, and turns him back. I found this very interesting. That's the exact same word used of Elijah's ministry in all the passages we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Elijah was called on to turn hearts back. And that's the exact same word. I said, that's curious. Matter of fact, that's fascinating to me. But we are to be ready for that so that they too can be more like Christ. That day when that call comes, may we be ready to answer that call. That's the two verses before us. May we be able. May we be ready. In other words, let us set a single focus, and that is, each of us be like Christ, so all of us will be like Christ. So James gives our potential case. If this happens. If any among you, verse 19, does what? Strays from the truth. That's New American Standard Version, that word strays. Strays or errors. You might have the E-R-R, errors from the truth. Let's talk about that for a few minutes here this morning. Remember, it's a potential in nature. The, the two verses here, he's talking about potentials. 
Right? In case you're saying, well, how do I know that for sure, Pastor? Well, take my Greek class and I'll teach you. It is a potential sentence. It's a subjunctive, we call it. But it is set up as a potential all the way through. And because of that, we need to be ready because a potential calls on more for us than the reality. If the reality was there, we'd do it and we'd be done and it's over. But a potential means we always have to be ready. That requires a lot more of a person because we can't afford to stop. We can't afford to let it down. We can't afford to ignore it because the potential is always there. That danger is huge. Would you consider it important if somebody strayed from the truth? I hope so. I really hope so. I hope that that's something that grabs your heart right out of your chest and says, Ah, we can't have that. It's a potential. We're called to have faith that's living, even under pressure. As a matter of fact, that's when it's revealed more times than not what faith is about, is when you put it under pressure and then you see what it's like. And he told us all along, be patient, be patient, strengthen your heart, and don't complain. But the reality is, not all of us are good at keeping that, are we? We struggle with that. Is it possible that we might sin? Yes. That's a potential. It's possible that we might get weak and tired and exhausted. We would be strengthless. That's the nature of the words in John or James chapter 5. We, we might become even physically ill because of this. And as a result of that, we might sin. In our action, in our attitude, in our words, we might do that. Is there any possibility that we might stray from the truth? Yes. Let's talk through this for a minute. Let's talk through this. Since we have a duty to each other, and our goal is that we all mature to the fullness of the image of Christ, if you want that sermon again, I'll do it. But I think you're convinced. We need to be ready to help our brothers mature. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. I brought it up a week or so ago. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If you are not mature, you are not prepared to help them in their need. That's just the fact. If you are not prepared, then your brother has... No help for his time of need. That would be sad. I'd hate for the church to be inadequate to meet the needs of a brother or a sister in Christ. I'd hate for that, wouldn't you? It'd be terrible to see such a thing. Another thing that behooves us to be like Christ. So this if says, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be that the church is inadequate for the job. And it really doesn't have to be for the brother or sister to be erring from the truth. It doesn't have to be that way. But what causes that? Three letters starts with an S. Sin. We excuse it. I can't help it. It's a genetic thing. All right? It's some sort of medical condition. Well, it's kind of to be expected. You know how we are. 
We use all kinds of excuses, but it's not necessary. In this passage, it's not what we're to be. And it's not a situation that you're supposed to stay in. Because what is supposed to happen in this couple of verses? You are to be turned back, right? So, that's not God's plan for us to be there. And that's why John said in 1 John 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Praise the Lord for that. Jesus Christ the righteous. Like I said before, He's not telling us to be sinless. That's not, uh, we, we, we have a sin nature. But that's not our excuse. He's telling us we don't have to sin. And we don't have to be a weak church. And we don't have to be ill-prepared. We are to mature in Christ so that we can help our brothers and sisters do the same. And that should be our focus every single time when we see a brother or sister who errs. It's not time for condemnation. It's not time to you know, go out there and make them wear a name tag that says, Boy, did I mess up. It's our time to help them become more like Christ. We have an action, in other words. An action in this verse. It says, turn him back. That's the action we're called to. But let's talk, first of all, before we get even further along the way, let's talk about straying from the truth for a minute. What is that? Straying from the truth. You know what? That's a simple sign. It's a simple sign that somebody is not growing in the truth. For if you're growing in the truth, you're not likely to fall from your own steadfastness. That's what Peter said in Second Peter 3, right? The last two verses. We're called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if we're doing that, then we're not doing verse 17. And that is where we have fallen from our own steadfastness. And the reason we fell is because we were tricked, we were deceived, we were carried off. In other words, we were not mature. We were not mature. You see, growing in the truth is what we're called to do. And if we're not growing in the truth, then we're susceptible to stray. We're in danger of that very thing. Be on your guard, Peter said. Be on your guard so you're not carried away. You know, the pictures we see on the news of these floods down in Houston and that region down there in Texas, it's like, that's incredible. I can't imagine seeing my house underwater. That's devastating. We've read before and we've seen before pictures of where the, even the houses are moved down with the water as it goes down the, down the road and such like that. People swept away and you say, oh, that's tragic. Peter says, if we don't have firm feet in our growth in Christ, we are in danger of being carried away. Does that give you enough warning? <laughs> That's a dangerous situation. Carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from our own steadfastness. There's a picture that comes to my mind every single time I read those verses. And it's one I literally saw myself in my first church I was in. It was a church that, well, we were all ignorant and happy. The pastor was just as ignorant as the church people. 
that we were just getting along with this blissful little ignorance, not aware of what's going on around us so much, trying to figure out things. And, and as we're going along for several years that way, a man showed up to church one Sunday. Boy, he looked sharp. Very impressive type. Professor-like. And he came in and he sat there in all his glory and such. And the people at church says, wow, how do we snag a guy like that to be a member of our church? They got all excited about it. And they literally did. They said, Pastor, get that guy. Make sure that guy stays. You know, we like guys like that. We want him to sit in our pews. We want that. And so I met with him. And we were having... Uh, lunch together, and he's talking to me about words and things that you and I would talk about too. As we're talking in that midst of that conversation, he started to say things that kind of made me think, oh, that didn't sound so right. Oh, that didn't sound so right. What was that? that? I didn't know what it was, but something smelled bad in the refrigerator. And I don't know what it is, but I thought, this guy's selling me something, and I don't know what it is. So I went back to my office after that meeting, and I, I pulled out Walter Martin's book, Kingdom of the Cults. All right? It's a whole dictionary of cults and, their, and their, their, a description of them and what they teach and all that stuff. And I started on page one, and I'm just leafing through this big old volume. I said, I, it's got to be in here, because that thing wasn't right. And I don't know what it was. And I'm going past all the biggies, you know, as I'm working my way through. And I got to this little one here. It was called Armstrongism. And I said, well, what's that? And I started to read it. And they were the exact words he said to me. I said, whoa! You know what that was? That wasn't a big rattlesnake. That was a little rattlesnake that could kill you just as much. And I started to read about that. And I said, oh, this is dangerous stuff. And the church wants him in their midst. Well, we had agreed to meet the next week. I said, okay. So I studied for a whole week. I memorized that chapter. Because in that chapter, it told me what they believed, but it also told me the scripture that confronted that. And so I went prepared. And I sat there. Well, he came prepared too. Because he walked in, sat down, we're about to eat, and he says, oh, I invited a friend. Is that okay? I said, all right. And in came his guru, his teacher. And he sat down next to him, and he just pretty much said, go get him. So we sat there, and we talked, and we talked, and every time he brought up something that I knew was wrong, and I had remembered, I'd just be turning to my passage of Scripture, and he'd say it, and then I'd read the verse. And then he'd move on to the next thing, and I'd turn to the next passage and read the verse. That guy got so frustrated. He just sat there. As I'm speaking to him, just reading scripture, that's all I was doing. And he was getting madder by the minute. And he stopped even opening up, he never opened his Bible technically, but he had this little New Testament in front of him. And he kept pointing at it. And he kept pointing at it more and more. And I thought, you're going to hurt that thing. Because he kept hitting it harder and harder. Finally he closed it, got up and left. And his friend who was sitting in our church that Sunday looked at me and then looked at him. Got up and walked out too. Never saw him again. I felt that the Lord saved our church from something terrible. I was scared to pieces, folks. If they could see my knees smacking underneath that table, I was scared to pieces. But I was so thankful that the Lord spared us. That was dangerous. 
how easily we stray from the truth because we're carried away by unprincipled men. Unprincipled men. We're not prepared for that because we have not grown in the knowledge of our Savior. That's how close danger comes. And they're not afraid to go after a pastor either. Because if they get a pastor, they get a flock. And that's dangerous. It's very dangerous that we not be this way. Here's what Paul also said. Paul said in Ephesians, he said, that we're no longer to be children who are tossed here and there by every wave, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There's a chance that we can still be children and be carried away. Children are somewhat defenseless, aren't they? They get picked up, they get carried off. We hear the sad stories. But folks, it doesn't need to be that way. That's the reality. It doesn't need for us to be immature and unprepared. And when it comes to anyone straying from the truth, it doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be. Our guard is to be spiritually mature. Our ministry is to those who are straying. That's what we're called to do. Notice something about verse 19. The identity of this statement should get your attention. If any among you strays. That stops me in my tracks right there. Among you? Is that possible? That's hard to believe. You mean one of us? Yeah, that's what he said. Among you. That's not the other guy. Do you realize that? We're not worried about who's down the street or something like that. We're talking about the people here, among you. Well, that's scary. What if anyone among you strays? Planao. It's a great little fun Greek word. It's, it's usually used in reference to one who, who causes you to stray. There's a person who deceives you, tricks you, causes error, so that you believe them. But this is actually what they, they put in the middle voice. That means, I'm the one who fell for it. The one who made you stray. If anybody among you strays. He's not talking so much about the guru or whoever it is that's teaching the bad. He's talking about the one who falls for it. Alright? If any among you strays. You're the one being led astray. They have deceived you. And Scripture says a lot about deceptive people and crafty people. They have deceived you. But James is talking about the one who's been caught up in the deceiver's way. Caught up and wandered off from the truth. I was reading it in one of those old dusty Greek books that nobody else ever wants to read. And I said, what does that mean? He says, the writer says, it's like the racehorse that got off the course. That's a lot of speed going when they head off the course. A racehorse off the track. It's about, he used this other picture, bees without a leader, wandering aimlessly. They didn't know where they're supposed to go or what they're supposed to do. They have to have a leader. They use the word of um, vacillating. 
in your knowledge or in your speech or in your action. You don't have any goals anymore. You, 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 you can be questioned about what do you believe or what do you know, and you don't know. You don't have answers for it anymore. And that leads to tragedy. And it's interesting to me that people who were more knowledgeable about God's Word, when they get swept away like this, suddenly don't remember any of it, it seems. They're confused. They have no idea. They've been so deceived that they're, they're like they're spun around with the blindfold on, and they, and they don't know which way is up anymore. Similar example Peter talks about in his letter, where he talks about those who are, are, are blinded. And the picture of that is here, here they are in a room, and it's dark, and it's full of smoke, and they need to get out, but they get confused, and they can't find the exit. That's a frightful position to be in. So that's the picture of this person that we're talking about here. In other words, they are entangled. Have you ever seen that word before? Hebrews talks about it. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, and where are our eyes to be? Fixed on Jesus. Fixed on Jesus. So we have the warning in Scripture, but we also have the individual who strays from the truth. Strays from the truth. He's wandering. He's roaming. He has no direction any longer. He's full of questions, but he doesn't have answers anymore. He doesn't know which way is up. That could be physically, that could be mentally, that could be spiritually, as James is pointing out. He's erred from the truth. The truth. Now you say, how do I know that's accurate? Well, James said it earlier in his book. Did you know that? Go back to James chapter 1. Look at verse 13 through 16. 13 through 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is what? Carried away. And enticed by his own lust. And then when that lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So do not be deceived. That's the same word he says in chapter 5, verse 19. Do not be deceived. Do not be caused to stray. Do not. The Bible Knowledge Commentary had these words. These are those who have lost their way. They are sick ones in the church family. They have wandered away. The Greek word here suggests one who has missed his path and is hopelessly lost. Wandering ones need to be brought back to the fold. James refers here not to evangelism, but to restoration. Revival, not redemption, is in view. The rescue action is of great significance. There's a picture in my mind as well. My, my daughter was real little. She was about three years old. We lived in Butler, Indiana. Nice little town. Simple little town. Not much around there. 1,500 people, which is huge compared to Hillsdale. But we lived in this little town, Parsonage, right next to the church building. Matter of fact, within 30 feet, you could almost, you know, 
touch it from outside the bedroom window if he had long arms. But it was right there. Well, my little daughter disappeared one day. And you know parents' feelings when that happens. You've been there. It's like, what happened? We searched the house. Nobody there. We ran across quickly into the church. Nobody there. We said, she's got to be outside somewhere. Most of the time they played out back. But she had gone around front. There's a sidewalk in the street. And I ran out there as fast as I could to see if I'd see her in the front of the building. Nobody there. And I'm looking down on one side. Nobody down that side of the street. Look down the other side. And way down at the end of the street, I saw a lady with my daughter walking back to the house. And, of course, I ran down there to see what was up. But the lady was the clerk treasurer of the town. She was also a member of our church. Her office is on the other side of the highway, and she was watching my daughter walk across the highway. I said, oh, brought her back. I was thankful to that. A little girl that just strayed. No idea of the dangers that were there. But she walked right down across the highway. That's amazing. We don't picture this too often. But what is our concern when a brother or sister has strayed from the truth? Do we take it as seriously as that? That that's a cause for great concern? That that's a danger for them? That they're not like Christ at all, are they? They're, they're falling backwards. They're falling from their steadfastness. How are we going to pull them back? How are we going to help them? They've gone contrary to the truth. They get confused. They have no idea where they are. You know who these people are? People who had joined our church. People who taught our Sunday school classes, perhaps. People who have fellowshiped with us. Were we deceived? Maybe not. It's hard to say. We can't pull them in open and say what's on their heart. We can't do that. They were one of us, but they're not any longer. James said, or John says this, just in case you wonder if that's for that unusual person out there, this is what John says, 1 John 1 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving, that's the same word, ourselves. And the truth is not in us. He says in 1 John 3, 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. He's talking to believers. Let no one deceive you. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Titus, chapter 3, first handful of verses, 1 through 4. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, Gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Here's the good news, folks. The Lord can fix this. All right? The Lord can fix this. He wants them turned back. And He can fix that. He saved us. Not on the basis of the deeds that we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. 
by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 2, 24-25. He Himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, bore our sins in His body on the cross. Wow. So that you might die to sin. We might die to sin. And live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Isn't it great news that the Lord turns people around? If he hadn't done that, where would we be today? It'd be hopeless. When we read this passage in James, and we see the potential of danger, don't lay it down and say, well, then it's hopeless if they disappear from us. No, it's not. We have an action, and it's actually in keeping with the action of our Savior. If we're going to be like Him, let's act like Him. What did He do when His sheep strayed? He went after them. He went after them. He went to turn them back. Because he knew they were in danger and he needed them back where they were safe again. We have a high priest like that. I I give you a couple more passages here. Hebrews chapter 5. The first three verses of Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about a high priest who really can't do much for you. Because he's caught up in the same thing you're in. It's called sin. And it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God to offer up both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for his people and also for himself. You say, you know what that is? That's a tour guide who's never been there where he's taking you. He's no better off than you do. You are. Would you like that? I don't know about you, but that makes me a little bit nervous about his leadership. But they went to a high priest who also was sinful, and they couldn't do anything but deal with their sins too. And he said, okay, well, at least we all in, have something in common. But our Savior is so much better. Because in that same section of Hebrews chapter 5, Starting in verse 5, he says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he said of him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he, carried, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest, he says in chapter 4, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our Confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So let us draw near, it says. Let us draw near and be confident before the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
One of my theological teachers back when I was in school said, that's your definition of grace. Help in a time of need. And that's what the Lord does. And I would say, James chapter 5, verse 19 is presenting a situation where help is needed. And you say, but, but pastor, that's what God does. Yes, that's what God does through His people. That's what He's made this church for. Is that we might mature together, right? That means we're here for our brothers, right? And when we start to see them straying, wandering on, they're starting to head down some path that you know is not right, we're here to help them. There's so much more. Oh, there's so much more. I just want to be convincing to you this morning that an immature brother or sister can easily be deceived, but they are needed to be brought back. We need to turn them back. And what does that mean? I'll make it real simple. The word epistrepho is before you. You say, well, I don't know what that means. It means to turn back. Isn't that great? That's a Greek word. But actually, the word epi in front of it is the word that intensifies the verb. To intensely turn back. That brought to me quite a number of implications. Let me make them simple. If you intensely turn somebody back, it implies urgency, doesn't it? If you're going to act intensely, doesn't that imply that it's an urgent situation? Yes. It implies effort, doesn't it? To intensely turn somebody back, that's, that's putting your hands in and doing the work. You say, roll up your sleeves, whatever. Dive in, both feet. Help that person. That's the intensity of it. It implies strength. It implies strength. Because we're not just kind of dainty turning them back. We're turning them back. You've used that motion before. Haven't you? If you've had little kids, you have. You know what it's like to grab them because they're in danger. And you don't stop and think, oh, that might bruise their little arm. You grab them. Because you know a little bruise on the arm is far less a danger than what they're about to step into. Little kids, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the way they used to make cars, they can't see over the top of them. And when you let them out the door at the grocery store in the parking lot, and they're all eager, and they run. I don't know why. But they run. They run where? Right into the parking lot. Because they're excited. And little eyes cannot see what's above those cars. They can't see around those cars. And you know the first thing you need to do. You grab them. You grab them. That implies strength. That implies strength. We must be strong if we're going to help the weak. Right? We must be mature to help the immature. A fourth thing it implies. It implies knowledge of the true direction. You have to know where you're going in order to turn somebody back to go on there too, right? You have to know where the truth is. You have to know what the truth is. You can't turn them to something you do not know yourself. But you have to do it. 
So there's an urgency here. There's an action here. There's a strength that's needed here. There's a knowledge of the truth that's needed here. And that's where we should be as believers in the body of Christ. We need to take this seriously and train adequately and be strong and be ready and watch. And when they see the need, act. Right? That's verse 19. We're to act. That's the action it calls for. Next week we're going to talk about the results of that. I just wanted to impress upon you today the absolute need for you and me to mature if we're going to be ready to help those who are strained. You see it? Okay. Now, we're going to commit this to prayer. Good idea, huh? We'll pray about that. But I want you to pray about that. I want you to take that home and meditate on that for a while. Think about what you're called to do. Think about where you are in the maturation process while you're at it. Say, am I more like Christ than I've been before? Am I growing like I should? Is that my heart's desire? Am I ready if the need shouldn't press upon me? A brother or sister's in trouble. Am I ready? Well, that's a lot to think about, folks. You've got seven days. All right? We'll come back and see the results of such things. Heavenly Father, boy, do we need you. When we stop and, and see what the Scripture is calling us to be, it's an overwhelming thing, but we're so glad we don't have to somehow manufacture this of our own doing. This is your work in us. And we are to submit to the Spirit who is doing this great work. Lord, we want to be like Christ. We should long to be like Christ. That is the remedy for the situation we're reading here today. Not only for us to be ready to help, but even our brother and sister who might err, they need to be like Christ too. And if that's not our heartbeat, Lord, then I pray that you tell us what's wrong. Because that's where we should be. That's where we should be when it comes to applying this text. Help us with it, we pray, Lord. Work in each of our hearts. We need that. And drive us closer to you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.